0: Welcome back to Isolated Incident, a podcast miniseries by me, Morris Fabry, about the HIV epidemic in Cuba. In our last episode, I gave a rough overview of the history of HIV in Cuba. Cuba initially met HIV with a strategy of containment, isolating everybody who tested positive in sanatoria. Over time, as the world learned more about the disease and how to treat it, Cuba's focus shifted to prevention and education. All the while, seropositive Cubans have been few in number and have lived relatively long and happy lives. In this episode, we will focus on the beginning of that story. Hopefully, I provided enough background to take a deep dive in this episode into the Cuban sanatoria, the isolation facilities where thousands of HIV-positive Cubans were housed in the decade following 1986. (music) By 1992, Cuba had built a sanatorium in each of its 14 provinces. We're forced to extrapolate descriptions of the other 13 based on what we know about Los Cocos, Cuba's oldest HIV sanatorium and the only one that's still running. Los Cocos is located in Havana, Cuba's capital city. It was a model for the sanatoria that followed. It is also the image of HIV care Cuba's government chose to show the world. Most people who write about the sanatoria focus on Los Cocos. Most of the participants in Dr. Stewart's interviews live in Havana. When they refer to the sanatorium, they're referring to Los Cocos. Right off the bat, it's important to note the limitations of my research. I can only speculate about how sanatorium experiences looked like in rural areas. Cuba's revolution promoted the ideal of the virtuous agrarian life maybe distance from the vices of the city, led sanatorium staff to be more permissive and trusting with their charges. It's also possible that outside the gaze of human rights organizations, people in the lesser-known sanatoria were more cruel and judgmental. Policies don't always apply to everyone the same way. Public health rules can paint with broad brushstrokes, leaving room for adaptation by the people who enact them. Healthcare personnel can tweak procedures to fulfill patient needs in different social and geographic contexts. But just as official policy leaves room for humanity, people can also fill that vacuum with cruelty and bigotry. Before I take you on an imaginary journey to Havana, I'd like to tell you about my trip to a southern state in the U.S. in August of this year. I'll be keeping the exact state private to protect the identity of our informants. I've also changed any names that people use in their interview transcripts, and all the quotes I use will be read by voice actors. Anyway, early on in my research, Dr. Stewart insisted that I had to meet her former research assistants, whom we'll call Jose and Elena, to clear up any questions or misconceptions I had about HIV in Cuba. Again, Jose and Elena are pseudonyms as neither of them felt comfortable with me using their names on a podcast. Before I flew to meet them, I had done months of research, but it all felt sort of sterile. The books, articles, and transcripts were full of references to places I had never seen. They dealt with a reality that I had never lived. Fortunately, both Jose and Elena emigrated to the U.S. a few years ago. Both of them were born and raised in Cuba, and both had devoted years of their life to Dr. Stewart's project. Jose, in particular, was one person I had to meet. He was participant number one the first Cuban person Dr. Stewart interviewed on record. He was an activist for LGBT rights who had also helped run an HIV prevention project. Jose also lived in a sanatorium for several years. Dr. Stewart confided to me that she hoped that in an interview on U.S. soil, Jose could be more candid about what happened behind the walls of Los Cocos. I'll admit, when I first flew to the southern US, I felt pretty sympathetic toward the Cuban government and toward their decision to isolate people who tested positive for HIV. It felt like a harsh decision born of necessity. Critics argued that Cuba was better positioned than many of its economic peers and geographic peers to adopt an education-based approach to fighting AIDS. Immediately following the revolution in 1959, Cuba restructured its health system and sent student and teachers on literacy campaigns into rural areas. Education is free and universal. Cuba has stellar literacy rates that prevail across both gender and de- geographic divides. With a wide-reaching, centrally-run health system and an educated population that could absorb new knowledge quickly, in theory, Cuba was in a good position to disseminate prevention information. However, as you'll remember from last episode, condom use was not prevalent in Cuba when AIDS was at the door. It can take generations to change attitudes about sex and behavior, and HIV would not wait that long. Jonathan Mann, that same WHO director who called the sanatoria Pretty Prisons, projected that 100 million people would be affected with HIV worldwide by the year 2000. AIDS held the potential to devastate, but if Cuba could withstand AIDS's opening salvo, maybe they could buy time until a cure came around. Besides, the sanatoria seemed pretty great. Free housing, free food, and free health care, and residents still got paid their salaries for jobs they could no longer work? Sign me up! Sure, those salaries might only measure up to about $20 a month, and sure, HIV-positive Cubans were torn from their families, their jobs, and their lives, but an HIV diagnosis strains even the strongest romantic ties. It would take time to humanize a disease like HIV that was associated with promiscuity and depravity. Many seropositive Cubans would be ostracized by their friends and colleagues, But don't just take it from me. Let's hear it from a Cuban woman who was diagnosed in 1988.
1: Let me tell you this. In 1988, when I was diagnosed, it was the beginning of the epidemic and people did not know. They did not have education about this. There were indeed rejection from the general public. In my case, from my co-workers, some of my friends and neighbors. I had longtime friends who refused to say hello to me who refused to talk to me when they learned. I don't know how they learned about it, that I had this infection. I was deeply affected because they were old friends, and I thought that friendship could withstand something like this.
0: She would choose to live in the sanatorium for the next 17 years, long after she was free to leave. Fourteen participants interviewed lived in the sanatorium at some point. Of those 14 people, half stayed longer than they needed to. In part, they remained in the sanatoria for economic reasons. As I touched on in our last podcast, the early 1990s were a time of economic crisis in Cuba. Unemployment rose, and the population faced a housing deficit. Cuba implemented strict rationing on food, leading to a rise in nutritional-related retinal neuropathy. Meat virtually vanished from the market. Meanwhile, sanatorium residents had comfortable quarters with air conditioning, color TV, and they received 5,000 kcal diets rich in calories and protein. Out of those seven participants who chose to stay long, three of them still live in Los Cocos, at least they did at the time of the interviews. Their lives sound pretty idyllic. Here's how one man, who works as a transportation manager, describes his current living conditions at the sanatorium.
2: It's an apartment. I have a living room, a small dining room, a kitchen, a bedroom, a bathroom, and a huge fenced in yard where I have my three girls. I have three female dogs, two Pekinese, a Siberian Husky. She's white and has a blue eye and a green eye. She's three months old and looks like a lion. She's driving me mad. And I have two parrots, a Katy, two turtles, three hens, a Ghanaian hen, a Ghanaian rooster, and a chicken too. I have a small field of coffee, French lemon. Those are big lemons. Cuban lemons, civil oranges, Yellow plums that I planted myself, a mango tree, an avocado tree, and pedritos, ornamental plants, organs and others. He says the sanatorium staff has always been kind to him and he appreciates
0: that the government pays for his medications. Another current resident, a lab tech who was infected in Ethiopia in 1990, loves to cook for herself, her husband of four years, and occasionally her colleague. Sanatorium residents were kept separate from their partners in the mid-1980s, but after Dr. Jorge Perez became director of the sanatorium program in 1989, he not only allowed couples to cohabitate, but also built new houses for them.
3: Oh yeah, that is a habit that I have. I plan in the morning what I'm going to make for dinner. I picture it in my mind when I get to the fridge. I like to vary the dishes. I'm quite exquisite, that's the way I really am. Very fussy about food. I'm always with my wiping cloth, cleaning off any little drop of blood, which... One of the things I enjoy most is my kitchen. For example, when I want to cook something, I have it clear in my mind and when I get home I stand like this because I take my time thinking. It's not cooking anything but what I've planned. Look, Luis is on call tonight and I'm going to cook something delicious. He says that without me he cannot be on call here, no.
0: Under pressure from human rights watchdogs, Cuban media advertised these more pleasant aspects of the sanatoria. Juxtaposed with the harsh reality of everyday life, the sanatoria seemed too good to be true. People would give anything for that kind of space, food, security, and comfort. Out of desperation, some Cubans would inject themselves with HIV-positive blood. These auto-infectors, known as the freakies, tend to be young rebellious, and into rock music. By the mid-90s, they numbered in the hundreds, mostly concentrated in the province of Santa Clara. Their story's been told in a couple of movies, Boleto al Paraíso, Ticket to Paradise, and Azúcar Amarga, Bitter Sugar, as well as in a 2015 episode of Radiolab. According to Jose, these young patients would clash with the older generation of former internationalists in the sanatorium. The first generation of people with HIV were soldiers and doctors, people who came from honored professions and felt like they didn't belong in the same place as these punk rock degenerates. Many of the freakies would later regret their decisions to self-infect, but their movement does reflect just how dire circumstances were on the island in the early 1990s. The sanatoria provided a safe haven for its residents, and the refuge it offered was not just economic. Homophobia was still very prevalent in the 1980s and the 1990s in Cuba. Carrie Hamilton, in her 2007 book, Sexual Revolutions in Cuba, writes that in the 1980s, the police would sweep the streets to clear gay men away from public areas before large official events. Jose tells me that there still isn't really a public space to be gay in Cuba. However, the majority of the HIV-positive population in Cuba are men who have sex with men, and this has been true for some time. For example, in 2004, they comprised 69% of the seropositive population. Among the eight male interview participants who lived in the sanatoria, only two were heterosexual. One was pretty vocal about how he did not enjoy his eight years at Los Cocos.
2: One day, I ran out of cigarettes. You couldn't trust anyone there, you see. Did you know Javier from the Edificios? Well, Maria, one of the administrative workers, would tell people who were new that for anything they needed, after 4 p.m., they should see Javier, and she introduced us to her. So I ran out of cigarettes at night and tried to find Javier to see if someone was willing to sell him. I told him that I needed to buy a packet, and he started flirting right away and asking me to go to his house where he had many packs of cigarettes. I turned around and exclaimed, Fuck off! I don't want any cigarettes! You see? It was the typical macho behavior. I was a tough guy, right? I said to myself that I, it couldn't happen to me. The no women told me that I was a man, but with time, all men became faggots at the sanatorium. I took that as a drive to become stronger. I thought I couldn't tell my dad that I, was, I had become a faggot. No,
0: no way. At the end of the interview, he says he became more tolerant of gay men over time, and now he is friendly with them. However... He still talks about gay men as though they are something other than real men and he was actually kept from joining the ambulatory program and leaning the sanatorium for some time because he got in a fight with quote a homosexual who disrespected me the man lived perpetually on guard afraid that integrating with the men around him would compromise his identity a macho heterosexual man was a fish out of water in an environment that allowed for sexual diversity This participant, who ran a polyclinic before he got infected, said he had never met a gay person until he came to the sanatorium. Meanwhile, sanatorium staff had years of experience working with gay residents. The sanatorium became one of the only places on the island where gay men could explore their sexuality openly without fear of judgment. One nurse who works and lives at Los Cocos articulates the struggles that come with her dual role.
1: Many times I am doing my work and I am with someone in a critical condition, I don't know how to react and I ask myself the question, how should I behave? Should I behave as a nurse who also lives with HIV or as the nurse that I used to be before? Why is that so? Because I am living with a double condition. The pain of a seropositive person is also my pain. As a woman, as a professional worker, as a nurse, what can I do? I try to alleviate the pain of the person in that bed because in that patient, I see my future reflected. That is my mirror. So I have to empower myself. I have to fight it. I have to give as much love as possible and try to move on with my life.
0: Her empathy for her patients also makes her a fierce advocate against discrimination HIV-positive patients face in hospitals.
1: Of course, if I get to a hospital and the doctors raise objections and don't want to provide care to my patients because they're HIV patients or decide to see them at the end and wears three or four gloves, what can I do? Because this is happening to them now, but it can happen to me tomorrow, so I explain my situation as an example. And many times it is not the stretcher bearer, but the doctor. At the Nacional Hospital, there is a problem now. They send a team of specialists here every 15 days to deliver care to our patients. Therefore, when there is an emergency and I go and those people in the team that comes here are not present there, nobody wants to provide service to the patients. Absolutely not.
0: The participant has filed complaints, but they fall on deaf ears. She says she has to overload one surgeon at IPK, Cuba's Tropical Disease Hospital, because surgeons at other hospitals won't operate on HIV-positive patients. The participant also states that she was repudiated by her colleagues following her diagnosis in 1988. Stigma, discrimination, and insensitivity toward people with HIV were and are pervasive in the healthcare sector. About half of the participants mentioned some negative interactions within the healthcare system. One seropositive man recounts doctors pressuring his pregnant wife to get an abortion. Several decry a persistent lack of confidentiality regarding serostatus. One epidemiologist acknowledges that even as recently as 2013, healthcare professionals get infected at an unusually high rate. Dissemination of HIV awareness is slow, and it runs into significant cultural barriers, even among professionals with a responsibility to know better. This is true now, and it was even truer in the 1980s, when the world was just beginning to understand AIDS. The widespread discrimination against gay people and against people with HIV outlines the value of the sanatoria. They put marginalized people in the same place as others who would share in their struggle. Earlier, I spoke to Anya Gran, a Chapel Hill-based city planner who graduated with a degree in historic preservation from Ball State. She wrote her thesis on the American tuberculosis sanatoria. And it seems like sanatoria in general have this in common.
1: And I think the other nice part about it was that, you know, everybody was kind of in the boat together. They, um... A lot of them were living far away from their families. Their families couldn't necessarily come visit because they were they were very strict and on only allowing like one hour of visitation a week. And so in my grandmother's case, she was probably, you know, ha- across the state. So her family, especially being the depression, they really couldn't afford to travel, much less travel that far to spend one hour with her. Um, and so she was very fortunate, I think, to make a lot of good friends through the sanitarium. That when You know, people receive care packages or whatever from home. They would all share.
0: Even after HIV-positive people no longer had to live at the sanatoria, they were still required to take courses on how to responsibly live with the disease. As such, the sanatoria could serve as social hubs for people who were targets of discrimination. These social hubs served as springboards into mutual support and activism that could be sustained outside the sanatoria. Here's how one participant described this process.
4: I was diagnosed as having HIV on January 20th, 1998. At that time, the stigma and discrimination were greater. In Cuba, little was known about HIV. People with HIV felt a bit like dropouts, a little rejected, and we were driven to look for help, to seek protection, and while taking the course Learning How to Live with HIV at Santiago de Las Vegas Sanatorium. A group of people decided to come together and we began visiting houses. We used to go to someone's house on one weekend, then we would go to someone else's and so on until we found out about the existence of the mutual help groups and almost all members of that course on learning how to live with HIV decided to set up a mutual help group. The team was named Friends from the East because most team members came from the East of the capital.
0: This participant went on to found the Esperanza,
4: or HOPE, Awards, an
0: annual celebration in which judges selected from within the seropositive community present gifts to activists, professionals, and other institutions that go the extra mile for people with HIV. For the first couple years, his mutual support team crowdsourced funds from members to show appreciation. Then, the event got picked up by the National Center for Prevention. Now, the seropositive community gives out awards at the provincial and national level at an event held at a major theater. It's remarkable that something like these mutual support teams would ever exist in Cuba, operating with minimal oversight in a country that basically doesn't allow any grassroots organizations to exist. Cuba puts up with the support teams because they work, fostering a sense of community and shared purpose that drives people to volunteer their time and resources to fighting HIV. One participant, who works closely with the National Center for Prevention, puts it this way.
2: The teams cannot be institutionalized. We tried once and all the teams in the city disappeared. People did not want to belong to a mutual support team if the coordinator had to hand in to me a monthly work
0: scope and an activity schedule. We do this with the coordinator of the project in each municipality. This person must know about the activities planned by the teams in his municipalities. He's
4: in touch with the coordinators, but there are no goals or deadlines to hand in documents. They decide how and when they do that.
0: Now, it's hard to argue that Cuba foresaw that the sanatoria would lead to the activism, education, and support that came to characterize the landscape of HIV in Cuba at the time of these interviews. The dialogue around HIV and AIDS in the late 1980s and early 1990s was geared toward a one-shot fix like a vaccine or a cure. Cuba is invested in the success of its HIV program and its healthcare system as a whole, though. Their accomplishments in health help validate their entire system of government. So the government sort of has to roll with how things turned out when HIV transitioned from an acute disease to a chronic one, and Cuba was ready. This is about where my mind was when I landed in that southern U.S. state. I thought Cuba had seized an epidemiological opportunity and... Half stumbled into something pretty cool and also sustainable. I felt like angles that focus negatively on the whole prison thing kind of missed the point. I tried to go meet Jose and Elena with an open mind, but I don't know if I expected to have my mind changed. But then Jose hit me with some bombshells. First, here's one of the earliest experiences Jose had at the sanatorium.
4: One thing that was terrible is that when I joined, we went to the initial session meeting with a psychologist, and there were about 30 people joining that day. And I remember that he said, do you see all of you here? Only a few of you are going to survive. The rest of you are going to die soon. And even though it was true, it happened, a lot of people died, but I also think it is not something that you can tell a patient that has just been diagnosed. It is true that there are the so-called long-term survivals but saying to a person is like a death sentence that leads to depression, and that is what happened. Many people got really depressed.
0: You would come back to this topic a few minutes later.
4: What happens is that sometimes when I'm talking, many images come into my mind right now, and sometimes I feel like I see some faces of people who died, and they were fine. They were people very strong and happy, and suddenly you see they start changing very fast, losing weight, and you say, what, what happened? And then I realized that they were having a bad life. They were drinking, having sex a lot. They were doing stupid things. And why? Many people say, I'm going to die. So what does it matter?
0: Jose isn't the only interview participant who had his own mortality thrown in his face. The reality of HIV in Cuba right up until generic medication became available in 2001 was that the disease would inevitably kill you. Sanatorium residents may have received free food, medical, and psychological care and all the comforts the Cuban government could afford. After the Ministry of Public Health received control of the sanatoria, they gained more freedom of movement. Some residents could go home to their families on the weekends. Musical artists were invited to perform at the sanatoria. Cuba also provided literary and educational workshops and invited religious leaders to the sanatoria. Residents were kept busy learning and working. Everything was free. It was like a combination college campus, library, summer camp sort of deal. But it would be tough to enjoy paradise if it was compulsory and when you saw your friends wasting away from the toxic effects of zidovudine or ACT, an antiretroviral drug that had only limited effectiveness until it could be supplemented with other medications that came years later. Here's what another participant, who still lives at Los Cocos, had to say about the first friend that
2: he made at the sanatorium. He was my first friend here, we were roommates. We came here at the same time and he used to call my mother, Mom, too. His death was really sad for me. From that moment on, wherever a friend of mine is sick or in critical condition, I get away from them. I don't mean to discriminate against anyone, it's just that it makes me feel so awful. And that's why I don't go to the funeral because I feel so sorry for them. Because I love them. That's why I do many things for my friends while they're still alive. I've seen people, some are friends, others are not. But I've seen many people deteriorate and die for many reasons. Because it's been their time or because they've been careless.
0: HIV-positive Cubans were forced to spend their days surrounded by reminders of their imminent death. But hey... At least they were receiving all the cuban healthcare system had to offer
4: another thing was for example that we became their guinea pigs to try to test new medications that were administered to us and then we didn't see again for example trofen is a medication that is exported in cuba another medication was made with mango skin we were also used for a protocol to test medication made in cuba these medicines that were produced in cuba were created to treat people who had weak immune systems, people who need vitamins and minerals. We were tested, we were used to test the medicines, but later they were not given to us. There was a lot of traffic of medication, like a black market system between patients and the nurses, medications that were very expensive and needed by the population. People outside the sanatorium did not have access to those medications at the drugstores and they had them at the sanatoria, so there was a black market selling those medications to the populations outside. In the first place, it was the responsibility of the patients because they were the direct beneficiaries of those medications and they decided to sell the medications to get money from them. So, there was a rule that the patient was supposed to take the medication in front of the nurse. There was a time of the day when you were expected to go to the nurse's office to take a medication, but it was easier for the nurses once they saw you in the morning to give you your medication for the rest of the day. I remember people who died, and there was a lot of medication under their mattresses that they did not take. It is the patient's responsibility, but it's mainly the professional person, the nurse's responsibility to make sure that the patient takes the medication. Another thing they did was the patient said, okay, I'm not taking the medication. You can sell it. We can split the money. There was this nurse who was very well-known, popular, loved, And she used water in the injections instead of Interferon, which was the brand name for this medication, so she could keep this medication to sell it.
0: Jose says that some of the sanatorium staff were openly homophobic and stoked violence between gay residents for fun. This, the medication theft, black market bartering, and use of sanatorium patients as guinea pigs are not part of the literature on the Cuban sanatoria. On the whole, Jose thinks the sanatoria were a cruel mistake, the machinery of a government that prioritized the world's perception of Cuba over the well-being of Cuban citizens. He thinks the sanatoria should have just been places people could go for quality health care of their own free will. Even if Cuba didn't intend for the sanatoria to be prisons, residents were still regarded as dangerous to the public and were kept there under threat of punishment. This arrangement carried connotations of blame and responsibility. The infected were forced to bear the full burden of Cuba's response, while the public could copulate freely, assured that the government had the disease under control. To Jose, this was fundamentally unfair. Why should consensual, unprotected sex carry such severe consequences? And why were people with AIDS treated so differently from others who held deadly, transmissible diseases? To me, Jose's testimony carried more weight than any of the other interviews. Those were on paper. Jose was a living, breathing expert on the topic who responded to my questions in real time. He was also the type of person who theoretically should have flourished in the sanatorium. As a well-regarded professional, he had a choice between receiving his care at Los Cocos or at home, and he chose Los Cocos. He describes a scene in which he rides to the sanatoria in a minivan with eight other people. Jose reads a book calmly, while the other eight people keep their heads down and say nothing in silent discomfort and fear. Part of the purpose of the sanatoria was to control behavior. Residents had to be judged garante, or capable and motivated to avoid high-risk sexual behavior, before they could leave unchaperoned. The sanatorium psychologist's judgment would contain assumptions stemming from residents' social status and the means by which they were infected. As a professional, Jose would not have been judged too harshly. As a gay man, he says Los Cocos was a good place to understand homosexuality. He became an activist once he left, and yet he deplores the sanatoria. Out of the 14 interview participants who went to the sanatoria, as I said, seven stayed there longer than they needed to, including Jose. Three still live at Los Cocos, over 20 years after they were diagnosed. In their interviews, they all hint at what they lost
2: when they entered Los Cocos. I had three dreams in life, to be a singer, a pilot, or a medical surgeon. I wasn't able to become any of these things because as you can see, I'm doing something else. At least I feel fine. I like this, the control, the paperwork, I like it. It keeps me busy, I feel quiet.
1: I'm so used to the sanatorium that I feel when I go home for the holidays, I feel that something wrong is going to happen. Nothing has ever gone wrong, and nothing will, because when I am at home, I do the same I do here. My meals, everything is normal. But I feel, I don't know. I still have this feeling inside of me about neighbors and people who say, is she the one who suffers from, I cannot get over that.
3: I prefer to stay here, because the thing is that I would have to I got used to the sanatorium, since it was mandatory I got used to being here and now I have a comfortable house here, I have my partner. I stayed because I had lost my previous relations. I had lost my home once I came to the sanatorium, before I went abroad to the mission I had broken up with my partner. I could have left when the ambulatory healthcare system started, but then I would have to live with an aunt or cousins and I thought I was the one who had a problem with my illness and I should stay here.
0: Jose describes the sanatorium as a trap. Why would anyone want to go back to working a job after years without work if they could passively receive food, housing, and health care instead? How would sanatorium residents explain their absences to friends and neighbors when they reintegrated into society? The skills and relationships people used to cope with the demands of everyday life would wither away in the sanatorium. They might have been comfortable, but even asymptomatic residents were forced to put their dreams on hold or to give them up entirely. Some people could adapt. Others were rendered stagnant by the feeling of uselessness and isolation. As we blew past hours two and three of our conversation, we moved past the sanatorium to more abstract topics. Jose left Cuba because he was tired of doing advocacy work in a country that squashed dissent. He was blocked from advancing his career because he would speak out when he noticed problems at work. Jose spoke to a broader degeneracy in Cuban society. When the only way to advance is to fall in line with the government, people have no incentive to do good work. Life in the U.S. has been kind to him. He has a nice suburban home with a garden out front. His good friend Elena lives nearby. He takes issue with U.S. racism, income inequality, and gun violence, but he relishes the opportunity to work hard and obtain a better quality of life. He calls democracy the, quote, most important thing I have learned here, end quote, calling it impossible to imagine as a Cuban. I think Jose's testimony and the interviews as a whole are valuable because they shatter the idea of the Cuban as a docile, collectivist-minded monolith. There are discrepancies between the government's ideals and, their view of the Cuban people, and the people themselves. Although the government seeks to reinforce virtues of self-sacrifice and service to a greater whole through education and media, those messages resonate differently with different people. Even Cubans who support revolutionary government and appreciate Cuba's systematic drive for social and economic equality might disagree with Cuban practices and might buckle when those missions cost them personally. Perhaps 27 years of revolutionary social conditioning before AIDS's arrival primed Cubans to accept isolation, surveillance, and Cuban communism as a whole. But even if Cuba's ability to execute their model was not constrained by things like global politics and the U.S. embargo, it would have chafed against people and institutions and practices that deviated from Cuba's view of human nature. Regardless of whether Cuba's view of its own citizens was valid, though it's clear that the sanatoria were not only born of an ideal of self-sacrifice, but also a sense of fatalism. Even with its pre-existing educational and health promotion infrastructure, Cuba did not trust that their people would adopt safe sex practices in time to stop the spread of AIDS, and they could not afford to let the epidemic get out of control. Although Cuba faced flack for their excessive caution, I don't think I can say they were wrong. Furthermore, I don't think their critics fully appreciate the alternate Cuban reality that could have been. The Cuban model had its flaws, but the laissez-faire, prevention-based model put forth by the first world was also a moral failure. All the freedom, prosperity, checks and balances in the world would not save the lives of people whose HIV infections could have been prevented. A more westernized response with an emphasis on autonomy and education might have given people with AIDS freedom of movement, but it also left them rudderless amidst a chaotic epidemic. For people in less stable situations, there was no refuge from the reputational damage associated with AIDS. Disease responses are inevitably messy endeavors. Cuba bucked convention, and it's easy to point out the weaknesses of their paternalistic authoritarian response but while the interview participants give the sanatoria mixed reviews the cuban people in general supported the sanatoria when we relitigate the decision to isolate their stories don't get told the cuban government deserves blame for its failure to prioritize safe sexual practices and its cultural reforms but then again it's not like other governments around the world got safe sex right too Cuba pushed gay life underground, ensuring that the men who have sex with men, who comprise the majority of the population with HIV, would be difficult to reach with prevention outreach. These problems are not unique to Cuba, though, and they're the types of problems that get solved over the spans of generations. And when AIDS was at the door, the Cuban government had to act fast. I think Cuba's decision to isolate was appropriate for their situation, It reflected the gravity of the disease, and it reflected the harsh reality that AIDS would not have faced much resistance from an underprepared population. Cuba seized an opportunity few other nations would have, despite the criticism they knew they'd face. HIV prevalence has remained low in Cuba throughout a protracted economic downturn. Cuba's enduring success points to a need for governments to expand their imaginations when faced with epidemics present and future. Death, fear, and abuse accompany disease spread in every global context. We would do a disservice by dismissing the benefits of Cuba's approach because of a few well-publicized missteps. The specific traumas residents endured in the sanatoria should instead lead policymakers to imagine more considerate, compassionate isolation policies in the future. I'd like to conclude this podcast episode with a story that I think, well, a story that I hope helps illustrate my point. As their economy entered into a tailspin after the fall of the USSR, Cuba doubled down on the sanatoria, building nine more between 1991 and 1992 to meet the needs of a growing HIV-positive population. This came alongside investment into their health system as a whole. Some researchers have observed that because Cuba's special period, as it's known, forced people onto vegan diets due to a lack of available meat and dairy products, and made them walk and bike more because the government couldn't supply gas to public transport systems, the population as a whole actually became healthier during that period of economic crisis. Cuba's critics might point to food shortages as proof that Cuba's system failed to put food on the table. Supporters of the Cuban government might blame the U.S. embargo for exacerbating Cuba's tough times, But a third approach is to appreciate the resilience of Cuba's health system in the face of adversity. Cubans got a lot thinner, their houses got more crowded, life got a little less pleasant, but they survived. That's all I have for this episode of Isolated Incident. The intro song you heard was Algorithms by Chad Crouch. The outro song you hear now is Super Sloppy Space Junk by Milkshake Daddy. Additional music on the podcast comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you, as always, to Dr. Stewart for facilitating my research. Thanks to Duke University, of course, for providing me an incentive to put all of this podcast stuff together. And finally, I'd like to issue a special thanks to Jose and Elena for their hospitality, their patience, and for everything I learned from them. If you haven't already, be sure to listen to the intro episode and also the bonus episode, an interview with Dr. Stewart. On our next episode, we'll move our gaze to the present, looking at how Cuba's culture, economy, and political philosophy influence the landscape of HIV prevention. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about the episode you just listened to, please reach out to me on Twitter at MoMoneyMoFabri, and Fabri is spelled F-A-B-B-R-I. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you listen to the next one.